You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Five, four, three, two, one, and we're live and we're back. Hopefully, everybody had as good of a weekend as I did. Um, Now, if uh, some of you guys follow me on social media, and I even think that I discussed it, let's see, on last week's podcasts, that I was going to be doing some fishing this weekend, and uh, the weather was absolutely gorgeous. I took four hours of PTO on Friday. We headed up to where my in-laws have a cabin when I say cabin it's actually a trailer right on the Mississippi River and uh, got up there early had a quick bite to eat and then hit the water with you know the the kids in the boat and we instantly started catching fish and that was the theme throughout the entire weekend Um, the water of the river was really high and I guess higher than normal and my father-in-law took the time to go out and find where these fish were at in the river and uh, wherever they were at man they were stacked in there we were there were times where we were catching five six and they weren't giants by any means but they were fun to catch uh largemouth bass we also caught smallmouth we caught striper we caught a one walleye one northern and my wife and father-in-law went out one day and they caught some bluegills and I think a couple crappies as well so overall the fishing was absolutely excellent Um, my daughter even got to throw a couple lines out start reeling you know we would set the hook she would reel it in Uh, it was just an absolute blast of a weekend got a little sunburnt ate good slept good and uh just had one of those weekends where you you just wish it would end it would it would it wouldn't end it would last forever and unfortunately that made monday i'm recording this on a monday or doing the editing of this on a monday and it made monday very hard to go back to work uh knowing that the weather was still nice and the fish were more than likely still biting um but We're going to go up there several more times this summer with the kids, uh, get them out on the boat, 
take them for a boat ride. My my youngest Mac is just a little too young to understand the whole reeling the the fish in. So he was playing with some of the rubber the rubber lures that my father-in-law had and what do you know? One second. It just took one second of us turning our back and he fell out of the boat and it I literally before his heels were even wet, I I reached in and grabbed him, but uh it was it it's not really unless someone gets a hook in them uh a you know falls off the boat gets splashed by something uh gets a, a fish fin in the finger it's uh not not necessarily a successful weekend but uh, again we had an absolute blast and uh, really looking forward to doing uh more of that my my father-in-law is a stud he's been hunting or fishing that uh, section of the river for over 40 years. So he knows where the fish are at. Plus he's retired. So that's all he does now is fish. And so it's kind of like we have our own personal river guide when we go out, go out with him. But uh, yeah, just an absolute blast of a weekend. Got to enjoy the outdoors. I'm starting to repeat myself again. But today we have another kick-ass podcast and we're going to be talking with a gentleman by the name of Steve. He is a professor at Mississippi State University. He's the quote-unquote deer guy and uh, today we're going to be talking about a variety of topics related to the biology and the physiology. I, I can't even pronounce that word so I'm not even going to try to say it again of the white-tailed deer uh, and I kind of wanted to tie it in to do these products that we are being sold and buying every year actually work? So there's a portion of this podcast that is dedicated to um, research that they have done and the results of that research to show, you know, hey, does this scent spray, is it worth it? You know, uh, is it eliminating any of the, the chemicals that are your body is putting off? All that kind of stuff we talk about. Uh, we talk about a little bit about the breeding cycle of the white-tailed deer. We talk about a little bit about uh, the vitals uh, of a white-tailed deer. So it's a really cool, detailed, interesting, you know, enter whatever other word you want to enter in there. But it's a kick-ass podcast. And if you guys are deer nuts, you're going to enjoy this podcast particularly. Other than that, I just want to say... You know, we got a one of our partners is Deer Lab, and that's what we're going to talk about here real shortly before we get into uh, today's podcast. And if you guys haven't had the opportunity to go do the free 30 day trial, I highly recommend doing it. Dumping in all of the trail cameras that you have throughout the years of a particular property and just play around with it dig into some of the data and the breakdowns that they offer. And the whole goal is for you to forecast deer movement for this upcoming deer season to say, hey, these deer in this particular part of the property or this particular buck, he's not even on my property until you know late October. So I don't even want to put any additional pressure on that part of the farm or oh my God, I got this, I got this, my target buck, I found out that he visits this one section of the farm one time in early October on, let's say, a cold front. So the first cold front in October, you better get your butt in that tree stand in that area of the farm. 
Uh, one thing that I'm playing around with Deer Lab right now is tracking my two and three year olds, right? So not only am I looking at my big mature shooters, my four year olds or older, I'm also seeing what last year's three year olds are going to uh, have done or potentially might be doing for this upcoming season and getting a head start on, okay, if, you know, if a big boy all of a sudden disappears come my rut vacation, I have a backup plan. And that backup plan can be a four-year-old, this year's four-year-old, last year's three-year-olds that I have, you know, data and information uh, from on uh, the trail cameras, pictures that I've gotten. And I'm going to use that information to forecast where this particular buck might be uh, on the farm uh, in during that rut vacation or maybe any weekends leading up to my rut vacation. So just a ton of information that you can dig into and play around with. Uh, and your trail camera pictures can definitely tell you more information than just looking at a cool buck. So the first thing you need to do is go to deerlab.com slash nine fingers. And from there, you'll be able to sign up for a free 30-day trial period. Like I said, dump as many trail camera pictures into that as humanly possible and start gathering the, the research, gathering the data, dig into it. And uh, hopefully you might be able to uh, find, find uh, where these deer are messing up and then you can attack them this upcoming season. So uh, definitely something to look at now. Let's get into today's, I guess it's just kind of a BS session on Deer Biology podcast. Enjoy. All right. On the phone with me now, all the way from Mississippi State University, Steve Damaris. How are you doing today, Steve? Great, Dan. I'm really happy to be with you. Thank you very much. You know, I get really excited about science, right? And I also get really excited about deer hunting gear right? So if we can, today, what I want to talk about is how science could, can prove or disprove some of the products that the hunters like or use throughout, you know, their season, whether or not, you know, they could be gimmicks or in fact, science based off science and based off a deer's biology, some of those products work. I'd be happy so, to talk about that. Perfect, perfect. Now, go ahead and tell us, what is your title at Mississippi State University? And uh, I guess, what are your, what are your daily tasks or, or yearly tasks that, uh, that you do there? All right, well, I'm a professor of wildlife management in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture. And I've basically, I'm basically the deer specialist for the university from a research standpoint. Okay. Uh, I like to refer to myself as the deer guy. And <laughs> uh, we're actually blessed here at, Mississippi, at, at MSU that we have uh, not just myself, who's a deer guy, but we have uh, Bronson Strickland, who is officially our extension specialist, but he's also a deer guy, too. And so the two of us have worked for about 15 years on a variety of deer research projects. And him being in outreach, his part of the, you know, the, the partnership is to help get the information out to the public. And uh, 
then in addition to the two of us, we've got a, a new, relatively new faculty member who is a habitat management specialist, and he's done a lot of work with deer. And then we have a fourth member uh, of the faculty here that's a movement ecologist, and he's worked in uh, Canada and the United States on a variety of movement projects, but uh, definitely within the, the deer family. So the four of us make up a really fantastic uh, core group of faculty. We call ourselves the MSU Deer Lab, and right. uh, I would put us up against any, really, any university in the country. I don't think there's anybody that has four faculty members that specialize one way or another in deer research. Right. So you guys are immersed in that 365 days a year, pretty much. Absolutely. I, I grew up hunting and fishing and, and uh, became a, a deer nut when I was in high school and started deer hunting. And uh, I was just blessed with the opportunity to work with deer for my master's and my Ph.D. back in uh, late 70s and, and early 1980s. And since, uh, since 1982, I've been associated with uh, a uni- one university or another as a, a large, large game specialist, a deer specialist. So, yeah, I'm a deer guy. So throughout the year, I know you guys do a lot of research, right? And your team uh, and that research revolves around large game. And I take it for the most part, whitetails. Is that, is that accurate? Well, most of our work, yes, is whitetail oriented. Okay. When I was in Texas, which was 15 years of my career, uh, there are a lot of different deer species in Texas. I worked with uh, mule deer, uh, Psyched deer or Sika deer, um, Axis deer, fallow deer, black buck antelope. I mean, they've got a lot of big game species in Texas, so I've worked with a, a bunch of different ones there. But uh, since I've been back in Mississippi the last uh, 20, almost 20 years now, uh, it's been mainly whitetails and then some, some elk. Okay. So you've pretty much lived and breathed whitetails for the last 35 years of your life yep yes sir okay all right so now going back to your job and your role uh, at mississippi state what uh you know what does your department try to accomplish in these research tasks that you guys take on every year well we are an applied group of of researchers we want to answer questions that mean something to people that either manage the population or manage the land. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the people that fund our research have questions, and a lot of the time it's uh, our state wildlife agency. Sometimes we have projects with others, other states' wildlife agencies as well. We have projects currently with Louisiana and Alabama. Uh, one of our faculty members is working in Michigan and Missouri on on uh, big game related projects. So uh, we go all around and, and do stuff. And I've been in Kentucky, uh, but state agencies come to us with applied questions. Uh, most recently, my my most recent project started here in Mississippi. Is the state agency gets year in year out complaints from hunters saying we're not seeing the deer that we think we should see on our property. Right. What's the problem? 
and it's probably because of your management guidelines that, that you're causing this problem. And so the state came to us and said, we want to know what is happening to the deer during the hunting season, how are hunters affecting it, uh, are there really a reduced number of deer on the landscape that the, uh, that the hunters are, are not seeing because they're gone, or are they just becoming invisible uh, to the hunters? And so we have a large-scale project in the works right now. We have 55 adult bucks with GPS collars that are collecting their own information, and we'll be having hunters, hunters next hunting season and the season after that documenting where they hunt, when they hunt, and then we'll be able to look at how the deer respond to hunters during bow season, during primitive weapon season, and then during the, the traditional modern arms fire season. And we have a four-month period here in Mississippi, starting with bow season October 1st, running through primitive weapons bow season at the end of January. So deer are faced with four months of potential hunters being in the field. Right. And so that, that's an example. I'm sorry, I get, I get so excited about the work we do, <laughs> uh, I can get rambling. But bottom line, we answer people's questions. Right. And, and, and I tell you what, particular one. on this podcast, you can ramble as much as you want, because everything so far that's come out of your mouth is gold, because I know that the my listeners love facts and love this, you know, the stuff that you guys are doing and find that interesting. So ramble on, I say. Right. Well, if I could then, you gave me the opening. All right. You got to live with it. Yes, uh, yes sir. Uh, <laughs> about uh, eight years ago, we did a study in Oklahoma looking at the effect of hunting, uh, hunters uh, on the landscape on deer movements. And mm-hmm. it was a really cool study. It was done on uh, a private foundation's property, and we set up three areas. It was a 4,500-acre property so we divided it into thirds roughly 1500 acres each and one third we had no hunters Mm -hmm. one third we had a relatively low density of hunters uh, which was uh, about uh, a hunter per per, uh, 175 acres and then uh, another third that we had a hunter per uh, 75 acres and we assigned them, you know, little blocks that were that acreage that they had mm-hmm. to hunt in. So we distributed yep. the hunters across these 1,500-acre areas at specific densities. And this, in, this hunting season was only a 16-day gun season. And we did it for two years, and we moved the, the treatments around so that the same 1,500 acres didn't get the same treatment two years in a row. Okay. And... We, we documented really significant impacts on deer movement patterns during the hunting season. After the first three days of the season, opening weekend, there were significant reductions in the way they moved, uh, significant changes in how they moved, and then significant reductions in the amount of movement during the day. So they reduced, reduced their movement rate during the day and when they did move it was five fold or five times more complex and uh, compared to like a straight line if you go from point a to point b in a straight line that's a that's not complex 
you could walk the same distance uh, just by walking in a, a square box and, and never leaving a 10-foot area. Right. Uh, you know, you could same distance walked, but if, if it's five-fold more complex, it's more uh, concentrated into a smaller area. And okay. so uh, after opening weekend, the deer decreased their total movement during the day and then their, what the movement that they did make was five times more complex. So in other words, they were staying in smaller areas and just walking around within them. And the areas that they chose were two and a half times more cover than right. before, the, uh, before they adjusted to the hunters. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So I take it that your studies kind of show that, and this is just me making an assumption, that the October lull that a lot of people say they see as hunters, as you know, observation from the stand, has something to do with the initial startup of maybe, let's say, a, an October 1st hunting season. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by the October lull. October lull. Okay. Have you ever heard of the term October lull? Uh, it's a new one for me. Okay. Well, the October lull is basically hunters saying that they're not seeing any deer move uh, in the middle part of the month because of one reason or another. They say that a majority of the movement is uh, be, it, it, nocturnal. Uh, the deer just aren't moving, so the hunters aren't seeing it. You know, they're seeing a reduced number of deer from the tree stand from opening week. You know, let's say opening days, October first. So they see some pat, you know, some some patterning going back and forth to the food source. Then the middle of October hits, and all of a sudden this movement just dries up for a little bit until. You know, later in October, when the bucks start, you know, start to the breeding cycle. So, okay. the October lull, hypothetically, which me personally, I'm not a, I don't believe in it. Uh, the October lull is, I guess, perceived hunter, um, hunter's point of view from the stand, uh, not necessarily any scientific fact to back it up. Okay, okay. Well, that what you described there is the October lull early observations, the beginning of bow season, and then less observation, that fits uh, what we showed in terms of that opening weekend, mm -hmm. and then deer became more nocturnal, less apt to be out moving in uh, outside of cover. Uh, right. And then we, we do know that once breeding season gets clicking along and the females start showing more uh, estrus behavior, then the bucks are going to be less apt to uh, be controlled by their fear of hunters. Okay. All right. And that's, uh, that is a really, that's really cool to, to hear that because, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess you want to call uh, in television entertainers, celebrities, whatever, um, people that have, you know, writers, they talk a lot about this, um, October lull and that, you know, it can be influenced by the moon or it can be influenced by the, um, 
It can be influenced by a change in the uh, food source or something. You know, you know, there's a variety of things that I've heard and read over the years that, you know, say what contribute to the October lull. But it sounds to me that a lot of it has to do with pressure and that they're not necessarily moving less, but they are moving. They're still moving, but moving in a smaller area. That that is the document. That that's the response that we showed in our studies in Oklahoma. Now, okay. One one thing to qualify that is, you know, that was a pretty uh, significant hunter impact that we put on the land. If you've got a bow hunter going out and hunting a thousand acres, that bow hunter is not going to be impacting deer movements. They may spook a deer or deer in a little, you know, a small area. But, you know, I'm talking about a significant opening weekend event. Right. Uh, right. You know, but, but if you have that, then you will definitely see a drop. We saw a uh, significant drop in the observation rates of our deer in this study. We knew, uh, after the fact, we knew where all the deer were uh, on our study area based on our GPS collars. And we knew where every hunter was. And we could look at the actual observation rate of our tagged deer that we knew was that they knew we knew the deer was in that treatment area. And after opening weekend, we had a 60% drop in observation rates. The deer were still there, 60% less observation of them. Okay. So so if you see, you know, 10 deer opening weekend, you go back the next weekend and you see four. Well, those right. other. You know, those six aren't gone. You right. just don't see them because they've responded to the landscape in the science world. They, they refer, like to refer to it as the landscape of fear. Okay. Uh, you know, deer are a prey animal. Right. And when there's no predators around, they can be easy going and mm-hmm. not worry about things. But when predators hit the landscape, and they sense it, and they figure it out, they're here, well, I'm not going to get shot because right. it's not in my best interest. You know, they're not thinking about it, of course. They're, they're deer, but uh, they're responding with instinct. Okay. And, and they're going to survive, and that right. means changing their behavior. It would be, it would be totally uh, against nature not to adjust their behavior. Right. Okay. So my next question is, let's say I'm, I'm managing a farm, right? And I don't like what, what you just explained happening. I don't want there to be a, a quote unquote October lull in my property because of hunter intrusion and pressure. Have you guys done any research about how whitetail act on a, let's say like a, a working farm or a very high pressure farm where there's a lot of, you know, human interaction. Uh, do they get conditioned to it? Anything like that? Yeah, certainly deer can become conditioned. You know, the classic case of the farmer driving and seeing lots of deer uh, and the hunters don't see the same deer that the farmer does because the deer are conditioned to that farmer's truck. Uh the, they're also conditioned to the hunters driving on the four-wheeler into the woods, and they realize that that means hunters are on the on the landscape, and they're they're not going to they're going to adjust their behavior. Right. 
So if they do that, let's say a four wheeler comes through their property every day and it, you know, the first couple times, the first month they, they get spooked by it. Does a deer ultimately get conditioned to where they stop running away from that noise uh, and they get to the point where they can, um, you know, they, they just stand 10, 15 feet away from the four wheeler or 10, 15 feet away from the truck as the truck drives by and, and they're, and they learn to not fear it to, to a great extent. Yes. Now, you know, I've seen personally and had other people tell me about, you know, the deer that walk through their backyard or along the backyard fence with the dogs barking on this side of the fence and the deer just looking at the dogs. They know right. the dogs aren't going to bother them right. because they've, they've learned that. Right. Uh, but if you just hit, set a dog out in the woods barking, the deer's going to run. Mm-hmm. So they figure out. It's, you're just thinking from an ecological standpoint. Animals don't need to, don't, well, they can't spend energy doing things that don't benefit them. So right. it's not advantageous to them to spend energy running away from something that's not going to hurt them. So initially, yeah, they'll run away a few times, maybe a dozen times. But then eventually they'll, they'll realize, you know, they'll run for, you know, less and less and they'll kind of stop and look and, oh, that wasn't really a concern after all. And eventually they don't bother running. Right. So from, you know, in your opinion, would it be best for a hunter? Let's say there's, uh, a piece of property. There's two pieces of property. You know, we're talking about a, a scientific uh, um, research now. There's two pieces of property. They are exactly the same. They have the exact same deer on those properties. And one has absolutely zero pressure, and the other one has a controlled amount of pressure, but it's consistent, right, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. What what do you think has the better chance of having deer encounters on, let's say, like, and I don't know how to ask this question, but is, is the guy who goes in for the first time and uh, hunts on the no-pressure property going to have better success than a guy who goes into a property that has consistent pressure on it? I would say he'd have better luck on the going in for the first time. Okay. Okay. So laying off of a property as much as possible until the, you know, the, the, all of the conditions line up, whether it's a a cold front coming through or a, it's starting the rut and the breeding cycle. And, you know, deer, like you mentioned, deer are less apt to have fear. At least bucks are, uh, because it's the the breeding season. You feel that they would have a, a better chance or, I guess, encounter rate. Yes. And okay. one of the things we want to look at in our, our new Mississippi project is trying to come up with a threshold of activity that deer will tolerate before they become more secretive. Okay. And, and that's, you know, like you're talking about that, that second property with just kind of a relatively constant but low. We want to know what that value is. Right. Is it, you know, three days of hunting a week? Uh, separated, you know, by no more, you know, no more than one, you know, a day. You got to skip a day, another day, skip a day. Uh, interesting project done uh, by Steve Ditchkoff at University of Auburn uh, with this same kind of question. He 
um, he documented the um, proximity or closeness of collared deer to a deer stand and he showed that after, if the stand was occupied for two consecutive days deer would tend to avoid that stand for up to five days okay and, or you know the area around the stand they, they would avoid that so right. that shows that back-to-back days is too much right okay so, so it is one day and then a, a breather and then another day okay well okay we haven't figured that out we haven't split that hair out right and me personally i kind of live by this motto that i didn't come up with but have heard from other hunters first time in best time in where the first time to a stand location is probably going to be your best time in just because you're breaking virgin ground so to speak mm-hmm. okay yeah that's pretty interesting stuff um now Anything else that you want to discuss as far as uh, deer, uh, deer movement and deer behavior? Well, uh, not specifically right now on the hunting aspect. Okay. Now. That, okay. Yeah. I'll have lots well, more to talk about. Uh, this is a two-year study starting this coming hunting season. So in two years, we'll be able to talk for hours on, on our newest uh, work. Perfect. And I want you back on when that happens look forward to it man all right so now i kind of want to transition over to the biology uh portion of a whitetail um and specifically their sight their smell and their hearing and how they use those defense mechanisms to um i guess uh, recognize a threat and then you know how we try to stop them from recognizing that threat with the products that we you know from the products that we use and buy on a you know on a yearly basis so the first thing that i want to talk about and and probably which is the most controversial uh, from a product standpoint is a whitetail's nose every everywhere you read every every you know everything that you hear is about you can't beat a whitetail's nose. And uh, before we started recording, you talked a little bit about um, some scent control methods of some research that you've done. So why don't you share that information with us? Sure, Dan. We compared uh, the top three scent control products several years ago using very controlled circumstances. Uh, we sprayed the products on shirts ran, and then randomly assigned those shirts to volunteer students who sat in the shirts literally wrapped in a plastic bag and then after 30 minutes we um, basically had a device that sucked the air out of that plastic bag and then ran it through a kind of chemical analysis machine that I can't even pronounce the name of (laughs) so I won't even try but uh, it evaluated the scents the, the smells the chemicals inside that plastic bag with uh, the three different, you know, students wearing one of the three different uh, treated T-shirts. And then we also had a a set of T-shirts that weren't treated with any scent control. And so they were our, you know, here's all the chemicals that you could smell. And, And then we looked at the three chemical products 
as in terms of did they control these all of these chemicals that were found in the the untreated uh, student volunteers. Okay. Uh, generally, we found about none, none of the three top products controlled more than about forty percent of the chemicals being released by the untreated student volunteers. So, so forty percent of yeah. let's say if scent was a hundred. Forty percent of only forty percent was destroyed by that that product, and sixty percent remained to go wherever. Yes. Okay. Now, one product was better than another in terms of certain chemicals, okay. uh, but overall they were, you know, all about the same in terms of effectiveness, and none of them were what I would say. Wow. This is really effective. Right. Now, that said, this is based totally on uh, the number of chemicals produced by the student workers that didn't have the treated T-shirts compared to the numbers sampled in the treated T-shirts. There might be only one chemical that's a key scent that the deer might smell, and maybe that one chemical was controlled by all the three products. I don't know. Our work, you know, we don't know exactly each of which chemical of the hundred chemicals uh, a deer would actually scent over another. Okay. But so there's like were, a hierarchy of molecules, scent molecules, that you feel the deer triggers a deer's, I guess, fear factor? Yeah. Yeah, there's, okay. there's certain... I'm sure that there would be certain chemical scents that would warn a deer like, oh, darn, I'd better get out of here. Right. Over, over, you know, it's probably every living organism, every mammal probably produces certain chemicals. So the chemicals that other deer are producing that we also produce, they're not going to cause an alarm. So it would be human-specific scents. Okay. So then, so then, I don't know, are you allowed, can you share with us the, the brands or the products that you tested, the three that you tested? Uh, actually, we, we signed a, a non-disclosure agreement on, okay. on the actual names uh, at, at the time by uh, the, the one company that funded the project that wanted to hopefully see that their product was much better than the others. And, uh, well, we found what we found. Yeah, exactly. So then, uh, were these all spray products that you uh, that I guess are marketed towards the guy gets out of his truck and he sprays down before he goes to his tree stand? Yeah, blind. Okay, so they're all liquid based. Um, uh, did you do any type of ozone studies uh, or like O three scent control studies? No, we haven't haven't done anything like that. Okay, all right. So, so then. Um, I guess now on your opinion of some of these scent products that are on the market, you know, we have this research that's in front of us saying that the best spray that you tested out of those three, a top brand, only only eliminated 40% of the odor that was on that t-shirt. Yeah, rough, now, roughly 40% of the chemicals being produced. Okay, all right. So then... That's only on a T-shirt, right? Now, obviously, 
humans breathe out of their mouth. Why don't you elaborate on what you told me about uh, the scent coming out of a human's mouth? Yeah, I mean, our breath, we're, we're, I don't, I don't know what the actual volume of breath, you know, air in and out of a human pair of lungs is per hour, but it's pretty darn significant. And there's chemicals coming out constantly. Right. And that's, a, you know, if you could control 100% of the chemicals being produced by the skin on your body, you'd still have a significant amount of chemicals coming out of your mouth. Right. And, and there's no way you can stop breathing for the entire you know, six hours you're on the deer stand. <laughs> That'd be funny. Uh, and, and so, you know, I I really think, and I'm 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 not bad. I don't want to bad talk the scent products that are out there. They do control scents, and uh, you know, so there's some benefit to them. Uh, right. Charcoal, you know, these charcoal clothing that you can buy that's going to control some scent production. Uh, so it's not that they don't work; they just don't work completely. And even right. if they did work on the clothes odor, you'd still be breathing. So, as a hunter, I believe you have to go back to basics, and right. you have to use the wind. Right. If the deer is downwind of you, and if you're breathing, they're going to be able to se- smell you. Right. You have to either be downwind from them or up high enough so that your scent is not dispersing down to them. Right. Okay. So from a now from a product standpoint, and if, you know, because I used to be that guy who would go out and I would buy probably a new spray bottle once every two weeks uh, if I was hunting a lot. You know, I would put it liberally on. Uh, and obviously still not addressing my, you know, the mouth, you know, all, all the scent or the chemicals that come out of your mouth and your skin and your hair and all that stuff. Does the, the spray on products, do you feel that they work good enough to, you know, to slow down or maybe make that, uh, fear factor or that uh, triggered fear lower or if a deer walks down wind wind of you and you're still dripping even you're really you've you've applied that scent that scent spray liberal is it going to affect that at all do you feel or is it just kind of a waste of money Ooh, uh, put me on the spot there dan thanks <laughs> uh, i, I you know, it's controlling some of the scents, the yeah. smells, the chemicals. It's controlling some of them. And if it happens to be controlling ones that deer associate specifically with humans, then there's certainly some benefit to it. So I, I don't want to say it's a waste of money, and I, I won't say that. But, right. uh, you know, if you're downwind from the deer, it doesn't matter, you know, what right. your scent is. Right. They're not going to smell you. Right. But, of course, there's always going to be deer downwind of you. You know, if you're in the woods, there's hopefully always going to be something downwind as well as upwind. But, right. you know, the deer you're going to be worrying about harvesting need to be upwind from you. Right. Okay. Now, other than 
like these scent sprays, we have some of these cover scents, right? And one, one product in particular is called Nose Jammer, right? And I don't know, have you ever heard of Nose Jammer? No. Okay. So it is a concentrated vanilla extract type of product. Um, I could be 100% wrong on that, but the, they market it towards spraying it on your boots as you walk in or and on your tree – uh, even on yourself a little bit, uh, and I've I've used it, and I've I feel I've had good results with it. But the market they market it towards that product when a deer smells it, it overwhelms them. So I and I always talk to it about getting into a car of a guy who smokes cigarettes or mm-hmm. walking into a pizza uh, joint for the you know the first five minutes. All you smell is that aroma of pizza and you can't smell anything else because it's so concentrated. Mm-hmm. How long do you feel it would, I mean, can, can that trick a deer's nose in a, in a method like that or an application like that? Well, uh, I'd have, I'm just guessing here. I, okay. I could see that it would. Sure. Right. Okay. Now I, I'd also ask though, uh, a deer, how many deer, how often does a deer smell vanilla? And is right. it going to be like, ooh, uh, what is that? I'm running away from that. Right. Uh, because it's a strange scent. Right. So, so I, as far as that marketing is concerned, they say it's all natural, right? It's found in nature. It's just a very high concentrate, con- concentration of it. So when they hit it, it's that it, it overwhelms them. That's, that's how they market it anyway. Okay. I can't argue with that, that you're trying to overwhelm certain scents with another scent. Okay. Now, kind of elaborating on that, um, do you f- feel that a deer's nose is obviously it's one of its best, uh, you know, defense mechanisms? Let's see. How do I want to ask this? I want to ask if what, from your experience, what triggers a deer um to have fear and want to run away obviously human scent right or predator scent because they're a prey a prey animal but what about i mean have you done any studies on let's say like gasoline or exhaust or cigarette smoke or like i guess lilac soap or something like that is there is there certain things that rank higher or lower on that fear factor that's uh, i have totally no knowledge on on that um Okay. I'll just say I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. So any other interesting facts that you'd like to share with us or any type of research based off of uh, a whitetail's sense of smell? No, I think, uh, I think, I think we've covered it. Okay. All right. Now sight, uh, their eyes, what they see. Um, you know, I've always heard deer see black and white. Uh, is that true? No, there's significant scientific data to support that they see colors. Okay. Is there a range or is that, do they favor one color more than others? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they don't have the same color range that we do, uh, but they tend to see better in uh, the range of blue to yellow to green in, in that range. Okay. And, uh, and that, that makes sense because 
their world is um, blue sky, green vegetation, and uh, those are important colors to them. Okay. Now, from a camouflage standpoint, have you guys done any research or studies that uh, like that show what the most effective camo pattern is? Uh, no, but uh, let me let me add a little clarification about what they see. In okay. addition to those colors, they also see very well in the ultraviolet or uh, the UV spectrum, okay. and so they see things that we can't see. All right, uh, and, and so that that give, that's what gives them the edge uh, over us in terms of uh, what we see. We're, you know, we're adapted to daytime hunting. And okay. life in the in light, in light, and that's why we see vividly uh, subtle differences in color. They're not adapted to daytime uh, activities per se. They're more of a you know crepuscular, early evening, nighttime, early early day when it's not quite as bright out. And so that's what they're adapted to see. But and the UV is is that vision that they can see. It doesn't require the light that. Uh, that we need to see. Okay, uh, so, so they have that ability. Is it their? Is it the makeup of their eye then that allows them to see? Uh, is it ultraviolet light, or they see ultraviolet uh, energy, or something like that? Well, it's the receptors, the type of receptors that they have in their eyes okay. that allow them to see different um, frequencies of light or wavelengths is the proper term. Okay. So there's a company out there called Hex, right? And they claim that they, humans give off some kind of energy that allows them to, uh, that allows animals to see them uh, better. And this product you can put over your head it's uh, they have shirts and they have pants and it blocks that or it reduces it dramatically uh is is that a thing yeah that's the new country there for me dan I, i've never heard of the product and um, so i yeah i don't know what it's okay. doing okay gotcha gotcha i didn't know if uh you know, they do humans or pr predators, let's say, do they give off an ultraviolet uh, um, wavelengths? A signature? Yeah, signature. Well, um, I don't know. That's okay. A good question. We, right. we certainly give off an infrared signature. Right. Uh, you know, a heat signature, but um, I, I just don't know about that. Okay. I don't know that they do, certainly. Right. I, I can't, so I can't say that they don't. Right. Now, with, with a deer being able to see uh, blues and greens really uh, better than other colors, I would assume that they pick up movement better, like movement of blue and movement of green better. Is that... Mm -hmm. Is, would that yeah, be accurate? Movement, movement is, is their key. They, they sense okay. movement better than the distinguishing color patterns. Okay. So uh, that is their strong suit. 
And, right. and that's why it's so frustrating when you're trying to hunt and and you you got an itch and it's so hard you you, you want to turn constantly looking and so you're always moving and and then you, you think you see something so you move you know a foot over to to look better and then you move some more and and so now they're really spooked and boy they're they're, they're tough animals to hunt right right so with like like a camo pattern um your best bet is to just stay still uh the pattern itself probably you know if you're moving around there's probably not a camo pattern out there that will help you per se as much as sitting still is just the best overall sitting still but also disruption of a pattern okay Uh, i mean a pattern being the shape of a human is a pattern that they could recognize and if you disrupt that shape then you're helping yourself and so you know and that's the basis for camo patterns is the disruption of a shape trying to make it blend in and uh, you know was it 20 years ago 25 years ago when they came out with the first 3d perception camo patterns that was a big leap forward and, right. it, and those those things do help, I think. Uh, in my mind, there's nothing better than a true three-dimensional uh, th- these uh, sets that you can get that are literally cut, have little cuts in them so that they have a little right. uh, physical like shape a, to them. Physical almost depth. like a ghillie suit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, yeah, there's probably a reason why you know our military uses ghillie suits because they're really effective. Okay. All right. So then, um, you know, camo really is the only, as, as far as sight is concerned. What about decoys? Um, have you done any research, uh, maybe a, a whitetail's aggression during the rut on decoys or um, how effective uh, a decoy is to bringing attracting deer to your decoy or to a stand location? We've, we've never researched that, Dan. That's, uh, that's a good question. Okay. All right. So the next thing... I'm not thing... familiar with anyone researching that question. Okay. Let's see. So we've talked about sight. We've talked about smell. Um, and we've we've talked about hearing. What? How good... Or I want to go back to, to smell for a second and the, the, the biology of, of their nose compared to, let's say, like a, a human's nose. Um, what, what is the difference? How, how actually good is their sense of smell? Oh, well, um, I, I couldn't give you a, a, an accurate number about how much better they are, but uh, think about the shape of their of their snout how long that snout is and think about the similar shape of a dog's snout and think about particular breeds of dogs like tracking dogs bloodhound dogs they can smell a trace chemical a day after you know an animal left that chemical right and so that same kind of snout is present in deer, and so they're pretty darn good smellers, scent, uh, scent, scent sensors. 
uh, yep. compared to humans. You know, look look at the noses we've got. They're nothing. Right. right. So they've they've just evolved to have a, what bigger air intake to you know. They, they have more uh, sensory cells in that longer snout. There's more room for them to be packaged, and then and more surface area for these cells to be exposed to what's being brought in. Okay. All right. And then what about the sense of, you know, they have glands in their mouth, right? And they have glands on the top of their head and eye, right? Or is it, mm-hmm. yeah. And then they have their uh, tarsal glands on their back legs. Mm-hmm. Other than, and, yeah. Yep. So how, how do they use those throughout the year? Well, some of them uh, are seasonally used, uh, and well, one of the classic uh, glands is the tarsal gland, and that's probably the uh, one that hunters think the most of because when they harvest a, an older buck or a doe that's in you know close to heat, you know the, their tarsal glands; those are the, the big tufts of hair. Uh, on the inside of their hind legs. Right. And uh, that tarsal gland is basically one of the more active glands because, one, it's producing uh, chemicals on its own, plus it has, that they urinate on it, and so it's maintaining a really active bacterial uh, population that's producing their own chemicals as well. So it's a really, you know, full of scent part of their array but then uh, another important scent producer is down between the the two digits um, you know they, they have two uh, hoof uh, digits that are touching the ground right and, and there's a, a, a sebaceous uh, gland there that produces a waxy material and if you ever uh, harvest a deer spread those hooves and look up uh, up underneath the hair that's kind of covering them, and you'll see a, an indentation. If you stick something, your knife up in there or something, you can bring out like a, a waxy white material. And, and that's a secretory gland that's really important in terms of leaving their scent on the ground for other deer to follow. Okay. And you mentioned the, the forehead gland, that the gland uh, it's, that's tied towards the the timing of the rut and the, you know, that period when they have hardened antlers, it's not uh, used throughout the year except for when they have hardened antlers. And they use that to, again, communicate to produce uh, oils and, and scents to mark trees that they're rubbing on. Okay. So when they do those things, like if I saw you, I would come up to you, probably shake your hand and say, hi, my name is Dan. And you would say, hi, my name is Steve. And, you know, we'd have a conversation. What what does the whitetail communication or the whitetail conversation look like? <laughs> wow, that's a great question, Dan. Um, well, what let, let's uh, we all know how two dogs have that communication. Right. <laughs> you know, they're going to smell each other. Right. And uh, deer do the same kind of thing. They're, they're going to want to smell each other. Uh, and, you know, the deer that are living on somebody's property, they're not 
generally unknown to each other. So they've already gone through those preliminary how you doings, uh, and they know who's who, and and they've probably worked out who's boss, who that dominance hierarchy is, because every age and, and sex group uh, within a deer population has their own little hierarchy, and then uh, you know males tend to be dominant over females uh, at feeding sites. Uh, older males tend to be dominant over younger males older females are dominant over younger females an older female will be dominant over a younger male uh you know there's there's all this hierarchy that's there for a purpose and and again back to my earlier comment about animals don't waste energy needlessly if they did they wouldn't be here they'd be extinct right and uh the whole dominance thing is designed to keep them from wasting energy. And, you know, they figure out who's dominant, and then they live with that within their little community. Now, what's cool about the breeding season in the the rut is the males are kind of, they're reinvigorated each year when their testosterone levels come up and they, they think they're, a you know, the bad guy. And, and right. the biggest, the biggest guy on the on the block, and they want to prove it. And so each year they they kind of re go th- go through that again. Um, and that's why we see so much cool stuff. If you spend enough time out in the woods, you see, you know nothing more exciting to have be able to watch two bucks that are, are actually mature bucks that are in in fighting in a serious conflict. Right. I mean, it's just, oh golly, it's amazing. I w- I've only seen, other than little bucks, you know, sparring or, or getting into it a little bit. I think I've only seen two actual knockdown, dragout fights in my, you know, I I started hardcore bow hunting when I was in 2006, right? And okay. in from from that day to this to today, I've only seen two mature bucks go at it, and it was one of the craziest things. I, it felt like I felt like someone was pushing a semi truck through the timber. It was so loud, and it really wasn't even you know they they say you you rattle to try to simulate a buck fight. Well, it didn't sound anything like that because once they once they are engaged. All they did is push back and forth and push back and forth and push back and forth. There wasn't, you couldn't even really hear their antlers. Mm-hmm. So that right there amazes me how a rattle, you know, sometimes rattling can trigger a buck to run in full bore to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know, do you know anything about that uh, as far as that trigger? Well, yeah, you, you've got different sounds involved in that triggering and, Basically, uh, well, I can tie, I'll tie this back to our earlier scent discussions too, but mm-hmm. um, there's the sound, the initial sound of the antlers clattering together, and, and that's certainly an important part of a rattling sequence. But uh, a, dear, a dear friend of mine, uh, Bob Zaglin, you, you've probably heard of him. He does a lot of writing, and, and uh, you know, we've done a lot of cooperative research over the years uh, in Texas. He's a South Texas guy, a biologist. But um, he's 
taught me a lot about deer rattling because he's worked his entire life in South Texas where there's you know plenty of of bucks and rattling can be so effective right uh, his sequence is to you know do s- just short burst with antler to antler clattering and then he'll spend five minutes kicking brush and pounding the ground and trying to make that sound that you were just describing that you know it doesn't sound like antlers clicking right. that's what he's making in, in his sequence because right. that's what a fight really sounds like right He's not sitting there just clicking antlers for for five or ten minutes because that's not what a fight sounds like. Right. All right, so here's something that just kind of popped up. You know, as methods as, you know, we as hunters try to trick these deer, uh, sometimes with scents, right? Whether that is an estrus urine or buck urine or some kind of synthetic, uh, I guess, urine replicate that, you know, is... Everything is, you know, get your big buck to step out in front of your tree stand so you can shoot it. Have you guys done any type of research as far as the effectiveness of um, how deer react to urine or synthetic urine? Yes. Okay. Uh, And we're actually in, in the midst of some of that right now, so I really can't talk about it. Okay. All right. So, okay. Can you, can you share what the research is, not the results yet, but can you, can you share what you're trying to prove or what the hypothesis is? Well, we, we've done some work looking at effectiveness of specific products and we're trying to use behavioral and biochemical analyses to uh, develop the world's best uh, urine product. Okay. All right. So then, uh, how much time do you have left on your, on that research? We should be done within a year. A year. Okay. All right. We, and you know, so our hope is to have a, an MSU deer lab product out, uh, not for this hunting season, but the next one. I gotcha. All righty. Now, other than that, some biology right i mean if you from a from a shot standpoint you know everybody talks about where you want to shoot a deer obviously if you drill a a deer in his heart he's going to die right that's a no-brainer um have you and i don't see you guys shooting deer with a bow and broadhead in your facility and you know tracking them but from a from a damage standpoint to the the whitetails biology have you guys done any research or have any information about you know how far can a deer go off one lung or how long can a deer go if uh he's shot in the liver or the stomach or you know the intestines or any research like that uh yeah actually um not so much research we've personally done but one of our cooperators here in starkville is a actually a, is a retired surgeon and okay. and uh, he's also uh, written and, and photographed did a lot of photo, wildlife photography uh, by the name of Joe Bumgardner and okay. he's actually uh, spoken at some of our uh, deer workshops that we put on on the physiology and pathology of wounds to, to animals okay uh, and what does it take to uh, significantly degrade the life of an animal, how much blood loss, um, 
and what's the most effective way to get that blood loss uh, effected in an animal. Uh, before I share some of his thoughts, let me uh, backtrack just a little bit because early on we were talking about scents and, yep. and then we talked about rattling. Now, it's been shown through research that the majority of bucks that respond to a rattling are going to circle downwind right. and come up towards the fight. Now, that goes back to their, their adaptive abilities and their nose capabilities. They, you know, they're interested in the, in the fight because, you know, they want to come see what's going on uh, for a couple different reasons. One, to see who's boss, but also, well, gee, maybe there's an estrus doe there, and, and I can go ahead and breed her while those two guys are fighting. Uh, okay. But they always come up, or generally they're going to come up downwind. So that just emphasizes the importance of scent to them. Right. So they use that as, I mean, would you rate a whitetail's nose as the end-all, be-all of, uh, I guess, their defense mechanisms? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say that that's their most important weapon. Right. So so if I, if, if uh, they hear a rattle, they don't know it's a human, right? So they're going to come in to... Uh, inspect it so they go downwind uh, to try to catch that scent Um, or if they see movement from a tree let's say i've had i've had examples where the deer doesn't necessarily spook as much as they you know again trying to go back downwind and get that verification from their nose Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay all right cool uh let's see here so you know, back to that uh, shot placement. Um, you know, did you have of that gentleman's research any other information that you would like to elaborate on? Yeah, his his point, and he's a, the epitome of of bow hunter. Uh, he believes strongly that uh, a double lung shot is what you need to to put a deer down right. quickly and, and effectively. Okay. Double double lung, single lung is. Uh, not going to effectively kill the animal unless you also clip the heart. Clip the heart, okay. Uh, or a multiple organs or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and uh, he, he couches it all in the concept of percentage of blood loss. And basically, you have to lose about 30 to 40% of the animal's blood uh, before they go into uh, shock. Right. And so uh, the quickest way you can get that, the, is, you know, the better. Right. So uh, a double lung shot not only causes blood loss, but it inhibits the ability to resupply oxygen. All right. So you lose that. You lose the, uh, basically, the, the way a diaphragm works and, and, and all of our lungs work is uh, the lung, it, it's kind of negative pressure, the diaphragm pulls away from the lungs and that allows them to uh, suck the air in and then it pushes towards the lung and, and it pushes the air out. So right. that suction ability and if you destroy the ability of that the negative pressure, that suction, then you've destroyed the ability of the animal to uh, regulate. So, uh, to uh, so if you collapse that deer's diaphragm 
it suffocates them. Yes, basically. Okay. All right. All right. So then let's see here. So we, we talked a, a little bit about sight. We talked about smell. We've talked about hearing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the breeding the breeding cycle. Uh, and oh, one of my favorite topics. Seriously. All right. So we all try to, you know, hunt the rut, right? And let's say – and this is what I've learned over the years. You know, sometime around late October, these big mature bucks to get on their feet and they're trying to find that very first estrus doe. Um, once he finds her, typically, how long does he stay with her until it's time for him to drop her and move on to the next, the next doe? Well, that that'll depend. Uh, Individual deer have a lot of variation in, in how long they'll hang with a doe. Okay. And then how many other bucks are around will affect that. Uh, and, and then just relatively how many other does might be in estrus. You know, how close are you to the peak of the rut and, and the need to go ahead and, uh, you know, the, the basic drive of an animal is to add its genetic material into the next generation right. both females and males that's that's their main goal in life that's that's what drives animals to to exist or to okay. be successful is to breed and produce young and so uh, that male if it's in the peak of the breeding when there's a lot relatively more estrus females he's going to be uh, more successful breeding once and then moving on and finding another doe to breed uh, so not necessarily going to just breed once and move on but the idea is he wants to breed with as many females as he can right so he's as it gets closer to the peak of rut he may stay less time than he would have earlier in the breeding uh, window if, if if you would so, so. Based off that, you th- you feel that he'll spend the most time with the first doe that he comes across, less time with the next doe, less time with the next doe, and uh, until he can't find any more does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, but it, well, the breeding season is like a bell-shaped curve, right? And, and you kind of have a slow entry into it, a build up to a peak, and then on the same on the other side, kind of a mirror image, it dropping off and then eventually going down to nothing. Okay. So it's bell shape. All right. So I've heard guys say this before that they've run into a uh, another rut type scenario in December, right? Let's say a doe does not get bred uh, the first time around. Does she in fact go into a second estrus or third oh, yeah. estrus until she's until she's bred? Yes. Yes. They. The, the record is seven estruses by one doe in a, in a breeding facility in at the University of Georgia back in the, I think it was the 1980s. They okay. actually counted how many estruses she went through um, by, by breeding her with a, uh, I think it was either a vasectomized buck so she didn't get pregnant or they just didn't even expose her to a buck. I can't remember, but... Uh, seven times she went through estrus so if uh 
if a doe doesn't conceive and you know start a pregnancy the first time, they will definitely recycle. And okay. our research indicates about 10% don't take that first time. So you're going to have about 10% of the does have to recycle. And you also have, you know, your, in, in some parts of the country, you have a fairly high percentage of your doe fawns that reach a critical mass to point where they become sexually mature later than the, the already mature does. And so they'll have a, you know, people refer to the second rut. That's, you know, these, these doe fawns coming in and then the recycling does that didn't take right. the first time. So let's say a guy is trying to plan a, you know, he, he's got his rut and he wants to plan maybe another vacation based off of the quote unquote second rut or the second uh, set of, uh, you know, the second cycle, extra cycle to try to catch maybe some of those 10% of does that haven't been bred and go back into heat. How long does that typically take for a time for a doe to reach estrus and then recycle back to estrus again? Somewhere between 25 and 30 days. Okay. All right. So if it's if it's let's say she goes in on November 10th, then roughly November or December the 1st or 2nd week in September she'll be going in or even late October or late November, she'll be going into that again. Yeah. But you know, 25 or 30 days later. Yes. Okay, cool. That's pretty interesting. Um, now is there a stopping point for that or is it something that just, I mean, in nature there, you know, the breeding cycle is in place for a reason to give the fawns the best chance of survival you know, in the spring, right? So the breeding season for everything revolves around uh, survival rates. Um, does does that stop if she's not bred? I mean, well, she has this period during which she will recycle. Right. Now, uh, the adaptive time frame is critical, and um, you know, I'm assuming you're from up north. I'm from Iowa, yes. Iowa, okay, yeah, because you, the, the breeding dates you're talking about are, would not be happening in, in Mississippi. We have, we have okay. later breeding <laughs> dates. Um, so I figured you must be up there somewhere. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's in the south, she could produce a fawn uh, in October, and that fawn could live. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just south of... Uh, South South Mississippi, southeastern Mississippi in particular, the peak of breeding is late late January, early February. Okay. And uh, you know, up the northwest corner of our state, uh, it's late November, early December, and and the majority of the state is around Christmas, Christmas to New Year's, which is fantastic for the deer to do that for us because a lot of people are off off work during that time it's, it's really great that the way they worked that for us right so who controls the rut i mean obviously the doe has to be an estrus to breed but and you see that you see these images or i've seen from the stand where a doe will come by and she is just worn out mouth wide open um does does she have to be worn out 
and I guess in a way controlled or dominated by a buck in order for her to um, let him let that buck breed her or does she already know who you know through the sense through the the hierarchy of dominance is going to breed her well that's that's what I, I love that's a great thing to talk about um, first off the doe that's coming by panting and, and all worn out she's probably in the early stage of estrus she's not in standing estrus so she's okay. worn out because she's been chased by bucks who can tell she's coming into estrus but she doesn't want anything of them yet okay and so they're wearing her out because she won't stand and stop and let them breed her okay when in, when a doe is fully ready for, in standing estrus she's not working hard she's not breathing hard she just stands there yeah and and if you've ever had the opportunity to see an actual breeding event it's not going to get her all worn out. It's right, over pretty right. quick. Right. And, uh, you know, so if she's worn out, it's because she's not in standing estrus yet. Right. And she is the one that determines when breeding is going to take place. Okay. Now, uh, you, you kind of tantalized me there by talking about did she know who she was going to get bred by. Uh, we've been doing one of our most exciting uh coolest projects uh, I think I've ever been involved in we, we've been doing the last two years in, in our research pens here uh, and, and let me step back and, and talk some basic ecology and, and deer ecology uh, bucks have antlers right. for a reason Okay. and uh, otherwise they wouldn't invest a huge amount of nutrition into growing them every year Okay. so their primary function is male-to-male combat and determining who's the boss. Okay. okay. Now, but if it didn't matter to the female, then they really wouldn't uh, probably grow as big of antlers as they do. Okay. Because when it comes down to dominance, uh, our research has shown that there's kind of an optimum size of antler, and beyond that, there's really no benefit to uh, it as a fighting weapon. And okay. what's more important at that point is body size and the ability to push. Because back to you're describing the fight, it's not they're not clinking their antlers together. It's a it's a, a sumo wrestling event, right? And and that comes down to muscles and body mass, not how many tines you have or, you know, drop tines or, you know, the, the big, the big antlers, they're not adaptive. Right. The really big antlers. And that's why we don't have a lot of really large antlered bucks because it's not adaptive. Right. But from a, from a buck to buck standpoint, but what, uh, back to the study that we've been doing, uh, we wanted to test how important is it to be, larger antlered as opposed to smaller antlered for a doe does she have a preference and in theory ecological theory suggests that it should matter to her who breeds her okay um, now I, I said a few minutes ago that when when she's in standing estrus she is going to be bred by the buck that's behind her right 
but it should matter which buck breeds her uh, because the offspring, she's, she's investing a year of her life into her offspring, which is the most critical thing she's going to do is move her genes into the gene pool in the future. And so it, it has to matter which buck is going to breed her. She has to have a preference. Right. And, but it's never been proven that female deer of any uh, classification of, in the deer family that they really have a preference for antler size. It's been shown in some uh, mouse studies where they uh, took uh, female mice and exposed them to two different males, potential mates, and they looked at how the female uh, chose between the two, and the choice was based on which which of the adjacent little pins that the males were in, the cages, which ones she hung around the most. And they did this study. They took half of the females and bred her to her preferred male, and half of the females they took and bred to the non-preferred, fem- the non-preferred male. And the offspring of the females that were bred to the preferred male actually had a greater survival rate and were more dominant and better nest builders as offspring compared to the females that had to breed their non-preferred male. And that's just really cool ecological stuff there. Kind of dry, you know, it should matter to who she breeds because right, she's right. investing her contribution, her life's contribution. So right. in theory, it should matter which buck she breeds. And okay. There's some theoretical literature that suggests that antlers are an indication of genetic quality. So bigger antlers are saying, "Hey, I'm I've got what it takes. You know, I'm 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 genetically superior right. to a buck with smaller antlers." Right. Now, um, so we developed a study where we controlled when a doe was in estrus. We we knew when she was going to be in estrus. We, we um, synchronized her estrus. When she was in estrus, we put her into a pen, a small pen, and on either side we had a buck, uh, a buck on either side of her. They were the same age, same body size, and we manipulated their antlers. So one had big antlers, one had small antlers. We did that for about 25 different estrus does. We we moved the bucks. We used different pairs of bucks. We manipulate you know change the antlers from one buck to the other so there we can did all the science stuff to control right. all the, the confounding factors and highly significantly the does chose the bucks with the bigger antlers hmm. and and it makes sense ecologically but it's never been proven because it was so it's such a difficult project to do right, and, right. but the msu deer lab figured out a way to do it and uh, we've got that research results in in review right now in a major international journal, uh, and we're hoping to get a positive review from that. Right, and that, that's that's kind of crazy because one of the biggest antler deer that I've ever seen, and he was he was harvested by the neighbor when he was probably I think he was nine or ten years old. Right, he had a he was. 200 inches and 
he I bet I don't think he was anything over I, I bet he was somewhere around 225 to 250 pounds right mm-hmm. and I but also on another farm I've seen the dominant buck be a 130 inch 10 pointer who's probably pushing uh, over 300 pounds and mm-hmm. he you know and he ruled the roost over that so does aggression and the ability to fight off that you know the rest of the bucks trump that trump what a doe is actually i i want to say attracted to well i don't know if it trumps what she's attracted to what we proved in this one announced study is that she does prefer larger antlers over smaller antlers for a given age and a given body size so antler size does matter but when it comes to buck to buck interaction i mentioned a few minutes ago that we've we found an optimum antler size that appears to optimize the fighting ability of a buck and above that there's no benefit to him from a fighting standpoint now does it matter whether she might prefer a larger one and from our more recent research yes she does prefer larger antlers for this given age and a given body size we've also looked at age and body size without antlers controlling for antlers same age different body controlling again for antlers uh, different ages same body size and, and we're still analyzing those data but there's there's past evidence and it it's ecologically it should matter it, a female should prefer an older male to a younger male because an older male has proven one thing that should matter to her and that's longevity all right and and the basis for the whole quality deer management approach letting younger bucks grow into older bucks for reproductive benefits i mean that's that's true i mean a female is going to prefer an older male because he has already proven to her that he's going to live long enough to be successful a young buck is not going to be as interesting to a doe that's potentially an estrus because she doesn't know that he's going to live as long. Okay. He could die the next day. Right. And, and that's why there's an age preference, uh, an apparent age preference, and, and we're going to prove it one way or the other with this study that we're analyzing right now. But uh, there's adequate evidence, previous research, that older bucks will bring a do- does into estrus more readily than younger bucks and and so they do prefer older bucks and it's more it's a biostimulation uh it'll bring them into estrus earlier if, if you have older bucks in a population compared to a population with just a bunch of younger bucks so did your did you do any research yet about let's say a three-year-old with some uh, bigger antlers versus uh, a bigger-bodied five-year-old with smaller antlers? <laughs> yeah, uh, great question, Dan. Uh, these last two years, we've looked at 
just antler size, controlling age and body size. Okay. Just age controlling and, and just body size controlling. And we haven't started tweaking those different combinations. Gotcha. Okay. Now, back to the doe uh, breeding portion of it. When a doe, um, let's say she's a mature doe, she's going to go into estrogen or I guess she doesn't necessarily need to be even be the dominant or mature doe, but she is going into estrus and she's one of the first does that go into estrus. Is she seeking uh, the, the biggest, most mature dominant buck or is that the buck's responsibility to catch her on her daily routine, her daily pattern? There, there is some evidence that does make excursions more frequently out of their normal home range during and leading up to breeding. Uh, okay. During the breeding season, they make these excursions. And, and the best explanation for that is they are either advertising themselves or actually looking for, other, for a buck that she might find more attractive. So... Uh, Yes, there, there, there's going to be some uh, preferences expressed through her behavior. Okay, man, that's some that's some awesome information. Um, now, I'm trying to think of there's if there's anything else. I got a whole like piece of paper with just scribbled notes down all over it. But is there any other exciting facts? or information just about the whitetail in general that uh, you think we might find interesting? Well, I'll, I'll throw out a little bit more about our, our um, genetic analysis of the breeding system in, in whitetails. Okay. Uh, my, one of my earlier uh, doctoral students here at Mississippi State, Randy DeYoung, that was a, a major emphasis of his doctoral work. And we were the first people first researchers to document multiple paternity and that, that's a phenomenon where uh, twins or triplets from a doe are actually sired by more than one male okay. more than one sire and uh, we first documented it in our research pens and then since then we've looked in six uh, well over six now wild populations and one in four sets of twins are sired by different bucks so three out of four sets of twins will be sired by a single sire but one out of four 25 percent on average of sets of twins are conceived by two different fathers that is so crazy that shows that a doe is being bred by more than one buck when she, when she's in estrus. Okay, I, I have a crazy, I have a crazy question for you, uh, and I don't, I don't know why this popped up into my head, but do you think that could happen with humans? Well, most human twins are, well, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, all deer twins are fraternal. There's no okay. identical twins. In, okay. in deer humans uh, there are identical twins and then there are fraternal twins where fraternal twin is where you have two eggs released and right. they are separately fertilized an right. identical twin 
is where you have an egg fertilized and then it splits into two identical uh, embryos. Gotcha. Uh, so could you, if a woman ovulated, you know, two eggs, yes, and if she had two sexual partners when she was ovulating, yeah, it could happen. All right. Now I know. <laughs> and well, some other really cool stuff that, that Randy found, uh, looking at antler size and the, the antler size of successful breeders in the population, uh, successful breeders have average antler size to, compared to the, the population overall average. So in other words, successful breeders don't have bigger antlers on average than any other buck at the same age in the population. Right. So, so it's not antler size that's determining who's going to breed. It's, you know, the buck that is bigger body size that can fight more effectively right. and, and has an optimum antler size from the standpoint of the buck-to-buck interactions. Right. Now, part of the, the, the multiple paternity is when those two bucks are fighting and that doe is standing there and she's in standing estrus, any other buck can come up and breed her. Okay. And we, we've, we've looked at the timing of multiple paternity and it's greatest, the greatest amount of multiple paternity occurs during the peak of the breeding when the most does are in estrus and so when there's only a few does in estrus you know a dominant buck can more effectively control her for that entire time earlier you asked me how long is a buck going to stay with a doe it's going to stay longer earlier in the breeding season because there's not another doe that's in estrus right um, but as you get into the peak of estrus there are does popping out eggs you know, across the landscape. And so there's just more, you know, I'm going to breed her and stay with her for a while. And I'm going to run on and look for another one. And, and, you know, it's crazy. Right. Crazy. And, you know, it's, that's how deer, the deer breeding system is. It's crazy. And that's why hunters see more uh, older age bucks during the peak of the breeding. Man. I love, I just want to say I love science and I love biology and I love the, you know, how all these, all these things kind of, kind of come together. Well, I'm, I have, I'm sharing, I'm sharing it, it sharing with you, Dan. Uh, I love doing science and I love doing science that informs management decisions and I also love doing cool science like this antler of the female choice stuff has absolutely yeah. no management application, but yeah. it's just really cool. Right. And, uh, you know, so 95% of what we do here at the deer lab is directly applicable to management. And then that 5% is that cool stuff like the female choice. Right. Do you have, uh, any type of studies that indicate what, how old a buck is or at what age he grows his biggest set of antlers? Oh, sure. Uh, we, based on a combination of studies, uh, the best field work has been done in South Texas because they have uh, so much interest in adult buck management there. 
uh, in South Texas in the field, in the wild, uh, and I say wild, but you know they may have supplemental feeding. They may be pretty intensively managed, but it's wild. Um, you're looking at six to seven years of age for maximum antler size. Uh, okay. In a in a breeding in a, in our controlled research facility, you know they might reach maturity as early as five. But I, I try to tell hunters, in, from an application standpoint, try to get bucks to six years of age as a target for management because that's when the biggest antlers are going to be available. And then what's another really critical point, Dan, to, to um, emphasize in buck management, mature buck management, is just because they reach six, you don't have to rush to judgment. They're going to maintain the same antler size provided there's a stable environment and, and they don't come down with a particular disease in a given year. They're going to maintain that antler size through 10 years of age. So okay. you don't have to just rush out and, oh, I think he's mature, so I'm going to go ahead and shoot him. Right. If you're not sure or you think he might be, but, yeah, maybe not, give him another year. He's not going to go downhill. If, now, he might if die the environment. natural mortality. You know. Yeah. But if the that's, that's antler, another question. Right. If the environment is controlled, his – you know, after six years old, he's going to maintain that for a couple more years based, you know, given he has the the same amount of nutrition. Yes. If, if it's okay. stable. stable. Right. Okay. Now, a lot of people always say, well, a two-year-old, you know, obviously this is not true, but a, tr- uh, a two-year-old where I, where I'm from is a mature buck. You know, that's, that's not true. But what is considered a mature deer. And the reason I ask this is because I have, um, I know someone who raises deer and he told me once that at the end of the fourth year, their skeletal system stops growing. And then for some reason they, uh, that all that energy goes from growing skeletal to putting on body weight. Um, -hmm. can you elaborate on any of that? Yeah. Uh, I'll correct those numbers a little bit. Okay. Uh, the skeletal system is going to stop growing by the time he's two years of age. Oh, okay. Uh, we've done that with x-ray evaluation of the growth. Uh, the tips of the long bones are what continue to grow. And once you, by the time a buck is two years of age, all of his growth areas of bone are finished. They're, okay. they're, they're cartilized, they're, they're, they're mineralized, so they're no longer growing longer. Right. Uh, now, he, he's going to start putting more mass on after two years of age. And, and really, I mean, he's starting, he's going to be heavier at two than he was at one, but right. his full skeletal growth will be absolutely shut down by two years of age. Okay. So does that extra energy then go into antler development? Or just putting on mass, uh, body weight, fat, muscle? Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, tweaking the different, I mean, yes to all of those. Uh, but as I, I, I think I've emphasized here, body size and mass is going to be a little bit more important than antler size on the buck-to-buck interactions. Right. And so he's going to be better off adding mass and muscle mass than 
growing proportionately bigger antlers. Right. That said, we know that antler size isn't going to be maximum until six. Well, you know what? That's because it's not until five or six that he's maxed out his body. And once he's maxed out his body, then he can max out his antlers because the antlers are secondary to his body size in terms of his breeding potential success. Right. On that buck-to-buck interaction stuff. For sure. Now, eh, we talked with uh, Bronson on the uh, Wired to Hunt podcast, and he shared some of this information. And I like it so much, I just want to hear you say it too. But the the whole myth about calling a small buck to, you know, because, you know, he's only 120 inches, uh, he'll never, or, or 100 inches, he'll never be a Boone and Crockett deer, right? Um, is, is that, does calling deer have any effect in antler size on a farm or, or spreading genetics? Oh, absolutely no effect on genetics. Thank you. I just no like hearing that. <laughs> it, it is an, it can be an important uh, management tool for population control and improving the cohorts uh, growing going forward. Uh, there's not an infinite number or amount of forage right. on on a property, and so you need to manage the number of mouths that are eating that forage. And so, uh, part of our uh, approach to buck management. And, and deer population management is if you are trying to uh, maximize antler size in a deer population, you're wanting to grow deer to full maturity. And if you don't have a, if you have plenty of bucks, and you don't have enough forage for everybody, then you do need to be making some culling decisions. And uh, if I could do a little self promotion here, uh, that. The MSU Deer Lab just yesterday launched our uh, our podcast series. Okay, we call it Deer University, and our theme is taking science and applying it to management. Uh, and I think it fits really well with your podcasts. You know, you say you like science and talking about the application. That's exactly what we're doing with our Deer University podcasts. Perfect. And, uh, our two of our first four launch podcasts deal with the question of culling. So uh, I would, if you wouldn't mind me plugging uh, your listeners, oh, yeah. go Heck go yeah. to uh, search for Deer University, and uh, there's four that are up there on the board right now. You can subscribe and download those four, and we're going to have we're going to try to have a weekly podcast uh, and and. Well, it'd be great to continue talking talking to you, Dan, on, on your podcast as well. Perfect. Yeah, that's a uh, heck yeah. Uh, I just I, I always love it when I you hear someone on TV or something say, "Oh, we got to get this." You know, he has, you know, his he's got small antlers. Uh, we're going to take him out of the herd because uh, uh, we don't want this genetic to spread all over the farm. Which, like you said, there's no merit for that whatsoever. No. Sure is, and and I would love on another opportunity to talk with you to talk about that in more detail. Why Perfect. that doesn't work? Heck yeah, I'm all about having you on. Anytime you want to come on, man. 
This is uh, you have a you have a, a free pass to be a guest on this podcast. All right, Dan. Well, well, we'll talk about it another time to uh, talk, and I look forward to it. Enjoyed it Perfect. very much. Well, I tell you what, man, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to do this. And again, guys, uh, if you love what we talked about today, go check out the Deer University podcast. Uh, is it on the Mississippi State University website? Well, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a technological guy like as much as Bronson, and, and you're obviously a technological guy. Uh, wherever you go for podcasts, is it? iTunes They're, or yeah, they got them all over the place. So I, the best right. thing to do is probably just Google Deer University podcast. Uh, yeah, and um, you can go to our msudeerlab.com webpage, and there's a link there that'll take you to another page that lists the specific podcasts. Or you can just okay. go to uh, on my phone. I just went to the the iPod, the podcast app on my phone. And okay. typed in Deer University, and, and it took it right to it. All right. Well, again, I tell you what, man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, our next interaction and uh, uh, sharing the the uh, the results of some of the studies that you're you're currently doing. Look forward to it. From one deer nut to another. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Steve from Mississippi State University for coming on the podcast. Be sure to check out their new podcast coming up. Uh, If you're into all things whitetail, that should be full of a lot of information. I know I'm going to check it out when I get the opportunity. Also, huge shout out to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hopefully, uh, you found this podcast interesting. I know I did. Second, huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. You know, the one we already mentioned today, DeerLab.com, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ripcord Arrow Rests, Ozonics, Wasp Archery, Gearhead Bows, Lone Wolf Tree Stands. So be sure to go check out all those products. And remember, with those products, there I am running discounts or I'm... You can get discounts just for listening to this podcast, uh, especially with Exodus, uh, Wasp, and Lone Wolf, and Deer Lab. So uh, there's a lot of offers out there. Be sure to check those out. Let's see here. Um, Also, National Deer Alliance, if you haven't already, go do it. Please. I don't don't even know know what to say. Just go sign up and be a part of it. Get the information and educate yourself on the happenings, especially if you're a a deer hunter. Other than that, if you guys are going to be in a tree, you're going to be cutting tree stands, you're going to be, I don't know, bird watching from an elevated position, wear your damn safety harness. Thank you.